And all that being said now, turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. In January of 2020, a lifetime ago, it seems like, we started working through the book of Matthew. Two years and nine months later, just a brief jaunt through the book, we closed it with the Great Commission. And then at the end of last year, we spent about nine weeks going through the book of Acts, specifically looking at the characteristics of that church that Jesus Christ promised to build. We came into December and we went through the themes of Advent, and we talked about how hope and peace and joy and love aren't just seasonal wishes for the Christian, they are promises, they're blessings, they're the expected outcomes of living in relationship to the God of all creation. And then last week, we opened up our new year with a new song. Psalm 98 gave us reasons to sing. Uh, we are a singing people. The church has always been a singing people, and we have every reason to sing. We can look back and we look at what God has done, and we have a reason to sing. Uh, his great faithfulness, his promise of salvation, his steadfast, continuing love are this constant reason for the Christian to sing. Uh, we looked at kind of why we sing now. We sing as a, maya, as a way to rejoice in his presence, the idea that God is with us. The unthinkable, unimaginable privilege uh, that God, Emmanuel, God with us, wasn't only a Christmas promise, but it is a continuing promise in the life of a believer. And so we can come together with other believers and rejoice in the presence of God. And it's not about our voice. It's not about our song preference. Our worship is a right response to the God who made us and the God who saved us. And then we looked at the fact that we sing as a people who live in anticipation. One of the reasons that you and I sing is because we are waiting for, longing for something. We know that this life is not the end, and we sing about what is to come, the God who is to come and dwell with us again, Christ who is coming back as the right and righteous judge, the conquering king to restore his people and to rightly judge sin. And the idea that, that God would come again into his creation, that Christ is coming again is a wonderful comforting promise to believers, and it's a stern warning to those who aren't rightly related with him. And so we sing in anticipation of that great event. And today, we start a new year, formally, and a new study. We're going to be spending the next 12 months-ish in the 12 Minor Prophets, and we're going to call this series Major Truth from the Minor Prophets. Uh, at this point, the plan is to move through those within this calendar year, so uh, Open up your index, find the page numbers where these books are, start to break open that gold leaf that has been there since you bought the Bible, and uh, I hope you're ready to jump into it. Now, to set the stage for where we're going, I'm going to read out of not Hosea, I'm going to read out of Jeremiah chapter 35, because this kind of gives you a sense of uh, the heart drive behind how the prophets spoke. Jeremiah chapter 35, beginning in verse 15. This is what God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. God says, also I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds. Do not go after other gods to worship them, and then you will dwell in the land which I have given to you and your forefathers. But you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab and the sons of Rahab have observed the command of their father, which he commanded them, but this people have not listened to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I spoke to them 
but they did not listen. I've called them, but they did not answer. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word. Creation itself cries out to your eternal power and your divine nature. And yet it is through your word that we see what you are like. We see your character. We see your holiness. We see the, the power of your covenant promises to your people. We see your grace, your love, your mercy. We see your salvation promised and then produced in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come before potentially an unfamiliar part of your word, I pray that you would open our eyes. You would help us to see things that are not only new that we hadn't seen before, but that you would help us to behold the marvelous things that you've put there for us. Those things that show us, again, more clearly who you are, the God that we worship. Those things that show us how we are to respond, how we're called to obey you and to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would provide encouragement as we see your steadfast love and faithfulness, even amongst a faithless people. Lord, help us to fall under the authority of your truth, to listen and to respond, even as Israel did not. Let me pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I mentioned that these are some of the crackly pages maybe, in your Bible. Uh, The fact is we don't often get around to the minor prophets. Um, Now, there are some passages that we might be a little bit familiar with. Uh, Every year around Christmas, or even when we went through the Gospel of Matthew, we opened up Malachi and we talked about the prophecies concerning particularly John the Baptist. Um, Jonah gets reasonable airtime. He comes up in the flannel graph stories, and in Sunday school, VeggieTales gets a movie about him. So we're kind of familiar with that story. But when it comes to just the scope and the preaching and even the familiarity with the text of our Bible, the Old, the, the old Testament in general, and the minor prophets in particular, uh, are usually kind of neglected. And there's some, we won't call them valid reasons, but at least understandable reasons for that. Uh, some of these prophets have difficult themes. We're going to be opening up Hosea in the coming weeks. There are some difficult things to work through with regard to Hosea. Some of them are not so difficult in the way of themes, but some of them just have difficult images to try and understand, to try and interpret, and you have to read carefully and in the context to see what God is saying. Otherwise, they can get mysterious and fuzzy pretty quickly. And the fact is that some of them just have a lot of judgment, and it's hard to work through judgment week after week after week without coming up for air sometimes. So, uh, In all the years that I've been in church, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon series that goes all the way through the Minor Prophets from beginning to end. Um, Now, we are not doing that just because I think we need to be different, and we are not doing that just because I think I feel the need to be difficult, I promise. Um, The reason is, is because God has given us these books. And if we neglect parts and pieces of our Bible, then we really rob ourselves of two main things. First of all, we rob ourselves of seeing God demonstrate who he is among his people. If we don't understand what happens in the Minor Prophets, we actually lose a huge chunk of how God interacts with his chosen people, uh, both in promise and in judgment. We lose a, a piece of seeing how he's just. We lose a piece of seeing his mercy. It's why Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 4, he says, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction 
that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The Old Testament and the Minor Prophets are part of helping us to see what was written for our instruction. It gives us endurance and it gives us encouragement because we see what God is like. And if we neglect those, then we neglect that for ourselves. And second reason, uh, we rob ourselves of our opportunities for obedience. We all know, and we're all familiar uh, with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we know that. And we know that all scripture means all scripture, but we go to some scripture a lot more often than we go to other parts of scripture. But if we're to be fully equipped, we need to be saturated with all of God's word we need to have the fullest possible picture of who he is and what he's called us to. So with that in mind, we're going to take the time to learn these books together. There are going to be familiar stories and familiar themes, and then there are going to be some things that are absolutely foreign to us, would be my guess. But just like with every book study that we go through, the purpose and the heart behind it is always the same to help us see and understand and know our God better and to respond to him in worship and obedience. That's the goal, that at the end of this, we are more able to worship him in spirit and in truth as he's called us to. Um, So today we start with an introduction, really a twofold introduction. First, we're going to introduce the 12 as a group. We're going to go through some background information that will introduce the bulk kind of of the minor prophets, and then the second part of this will be an introduction to Hosea in particular. Now, when we come to these types of studies, and especially when we go through studies like we're doing today, uh, it might seem a little bit academic, and that's not the goal. It's simply the reality that we have to be familiar with some of the parts of time and history and place Uh, to understand why these things are written. So uh, stick with me. I promise that it matters. And when it comes to the Minor Prophets, we want to start off by understanding, first of all, who wrote it. Uh, Because it is a group, and when we talk about the group, maybe we need to identify that group in particular right off the bat. We talk about the Minor Prophets and the Major Prophets, and maybe we don't know why we call them Minor or Major, or maybe we don't know why we group them together at all. We have our Bibles, and our Bibles are neatly broken down into Old and New Testament, and then by book, and by chapter, and by verse. But as God's people have read through God's Word, there are groups of books that have always been kind of put together. Uh, In the Old Testament, you have what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Law, the books of Moses, and that's the first five books of the Old Testament. They have a common author. uh, They set the foundation for everything that comes after that. You have wisdom books, like Psalms, like Proverbs. You have historical books, Kings, Chronicles, We just, I know you barely remember, but we just went through the gospel of Matthew, and that is one of the gospel accounts. We could group together Paul's writings, and they are in our Bibles. And so we talk about books sometimes, not as individuals, but as how they stand with the group. And in the Old Testament, you have a group of writings that are prophetic writings, the writings of the prophets. And we break that group of writings of the prophets into two groups, major prophets and minor prophets. And when we talk about major and minor, we're not talking about a distinction in how important they are or how critical their message is. We're talking about the length. You have major prophets that write longer books, and the minor prophets tend to write shorter books. And so we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel as the major prophets, and then the 12 following books are called the minor prophets. And in your bulletins, you have this sheet. 
And my guess is that this simple little sheet will go a long way toward answering some of the questions that we have as far as how these things fit. So you can see the groupings of the prophets there. Major prophets on that have a little dot by them. And the minor prophets are everyone else. Now when it comes to that, we have 12 prophets that write in 12 different contexts. And some of those men who are those 12 minor prophets, we know a little bit more about and some we know relatively little about. In fact, well, to be honest, most we know very little about. Um, we know some things about some of their occupations. We know that Amos worked with sheep and with figs. Uh, we know some of the prophets like Jonah are referred to in other parts of the Old Testament. But for the vast majority, we know only what the authors tell us in their introduction. Now, ultimately, when it comes down to who wrote it, we know that the Holy Spirit revealed these things. We just talked about 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. Uh, these are not a group of men who write for their own purposes. These are prophets who God opened their mouth, and they spoke God's word with God's authority to God's people. The language is, the, is their own. The images are their own. Their life circumstances are their own. The context is their own. But the words in every word is exactly what God has intended. And the second thing that we need to understand is not just who wrote them, but when they were written. And that can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, some of us have been in church and Sunday school for a long, long time. We went through the Awana program, and maybe we have some familiarity with the culture and the history and the geography. But for many of us, the time and the place of these books is as unfamiliar as the content that's inside of these books. Uh, so part of that challenge is that these aren't given in chronological order. The first one of the Minor Prophets, as you open your Bible, is Hosea, and then Joel, Amos, Obadiah. But you look at this little chronological sheet, and you can see on there that Hosea wasn't the first one to write. So how do we put them together? How do they fit in? That's part of what we're going to be going to. Uh, and in order to kind of put these into their proper place, we need to have something of an understanding of Israel's history. And as soon as I said an understanding of history, I know that I lost some of you uh, because some people write up history is boring. I do not need it to understand what God has called me to do. And I want to challenge that just a little bit. First of all, history is anything but boring. History is fascinating. History is uplifting. History is heartbreaking. That's because history is the story of mankind and your life isn't boring. And the lives of nations and people and their interactions with the holy God of the universe have no place and purpose in being boring. They, they can't be boring. You might have had bad history teachers. You might have a bad preacher sometimes, and I might fall into that category. But history itself is not boring. Uh, and the history of Israel is critical for us to understand why these prophets matter. When you see how they fit into the flow of Israel's history, where they come in the chronology, it actually helps us understand not only their message, but why it matters so very much. So as you think through the history of Israel, you know that God made promises to Abraham that he would be the start of a people, essentially. Now that people moves into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And after 400 years, God redeems his people, brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and places them in the promised land. And the problem is a sentence like that brings them out of Israel and or brings them out of slavery in Egypt and moves them into the promised land. That covers 40 years in four books of the Bible. So I mean, things move quickly. After they're moved into the promised land, there's no king at that point. There are judges given to the people that exercise authority in a time and the place. And the people cry out for a king because they want to be like all the nations around them. And eventually God gives them a king. 
He gives them Saul. Saul was the first king over Israel, but Saul proves to be a wicked ruler, and David is anointed in his place. David unites and rules over Israel. He moves the capital to Jerusalem. He has a son, Solomon, and Solomon is the last king to rule over a united Israel. Something critical happens with the death of Solomon, and that is that Israel is divided into two kingdoms. And you can see it on that slide there. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And if your eyes are glazing over, understand that this is absolutely critical. Because now instead of having one unified people, you have a strong divide. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. You see two little stars on there. Now you have two different capital cities. You have Jerusalem in the south and you have Samaria in the northern kingdom. You have a divide in the worship of the people. The temple still stands in Jerusalem at this point. But the kings of the north, in particular Jeroboam I, who is the first king of the north, says if the people go back to Jerusalem to worship, they're not going to want to stay up here. They're going to realize that this is not right. They will kill me and the land will be reunited. So he says instead we're going to do this. We're going to set up two alternate places to worship. One of them at Bethel or Bayat El right there under Shechem. And the other is up north off the top of this map at a place called Dan. He sets up two alternate worship sites. By the way, God did not approve of that plan. So you have a divide in capitals. You have a divide in the worship of the people. You have a divide in the rule over the people. You have a series of kings in the north and the south. In the north, consistently bad kings. Wicked, failed ruler after wicked, failed ruler that lead the people farther and farther away from what God has called them to be. In the south, you do have good kings on and off, and a succession of bad kings there as well. Eventually, that northern part of the kingdom there, that blue area, falls to the kingdom of Assyria. 721, 722 BC, Assyria carries away those people. The southern kingdom survives a bit longer, but in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, story of Daniel, Babylon comes and removes the southern kingdom. And the people united in the promised land under the blessing of God are first divided and then carried away altogether in exile. For 70 years, the people live as captives. And then slowly, they return. They're freed and they're allowed to go back. And they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. And the divide between north and south is gone, but some things are never the same. There's a restoration to the land. There's a restoration to worship, but the Ark of the Covenant never returns. It's gone. There's never again a Davidic king who sits and rules over Israel. And so while you have a restoration, it is a hint and a shadow of what the people know that they are called to be. And they will continue to live under the authority of other empires, other rulers, for the rest of the biblical record. And that's important because that's the context that the minor prophets speak in. From the time of that divided kingdom, through the captivity, and back toward the restoration to the land. That period of time. And again, you see that on this sheet. I hope that's just a simple kind of overview of when they spoke and where they spoke. Those various kingdoms that come and remove the people and then their return to the land. And some of those minor prophets speak to the northern 
kingdom. Some of those minor prophets speak to the southern kingdom. Some of these minor prophets speak to the nations around them that are involved in the judgment. Uh, Some of the minor prophets speak to people after the exile. And understanding who is speaking and when becomes critical to understanding what they are warning against. So every book that we go through over the next 12 months, we're going to place into this timeline and we're going to help set in the terms of this geography. And when we understand that, again, I promise you, it will help you to read them differently and help you to see their themes more clearly. And that does bring us to the themes. That brings us to the why. Why is it that the prophets wrote? And again, we could say in short, well, because God told them to. Again, these writing prophets, these 12 minor prophets, they are not writing because they see the need for social reform. They are not writing because they see the need for political reform. They write because God opens their mouth and says, this is what you are to tell my people. God sends his people with his word and there's no distortion that they're allowed to have. There's no purpose or intention of their own that they're allowed to bring to it. And while each book has its own major theme, their own major thrust, there are some very consistent themes that are going to come up over and over and over in the coming years. So we're going to need to be familiar with those. And the first one of those is God's sovereignty. You cannot read through the minor prophets without coming away with the understanding that God is in control of all of this. When the locusts come and they devastate the crops, it's because God did it. When the people experience a break, from their enemies and salvation uh, from a physical, political standpoint, it's because God has stopped the enemy. On the other hand, when they experience judgment, when foreign nations come and oppress and overrun them, it's because God has allowed it. And there are times when the prophets struggle with that reality. There are times when they struggle with God. How could you do that in your plan? How could you send that message, Jonah? How could you use those people? How do you use Babylon to carry out your will? But while they struggle with that, there is never a doubt in any of the writings that God is always and ultimately behind everything that happens. Second major theme is God is holy Not only is God sovereign, but the second thing is God's holiness. And when we talk about holiness, we're not just talking about moral goodness and purity, although God is absolutely morally pure and perfect. He is the definition of good. But when we talk about holiness, we're talking about an otherness, a distinction, a separation. To say that God is holy is not just that God is nice or that God is without sin. To say that God is holy is to say that God is completely and totally other than anything else in creation. And God's holiness means that he deserves and demands right worship. He has the right and the authority to call people to worship and obedience. It means his commands aren't something that you can pick and choose whether you obey or not. It means his worship isn't something that you approach however you want, half-heartedly or in half-obedience. When you fail to meet that standard of God's holiness, there are consequences, and that brings us to the third major theme, and that is God's justice. God is just. Because he is holy, sin must be dealt with. And God is going to deal with sin in every form and in every place. God is going to judge the sin of the nations, but God does not ignore the sins of his people. And when God exercises his judgment... When God brings his justice, 
It's not how you and I often exercise our justice. It's not in an outburst of uncontrolled anger or rage. It's not a childish tantrum. His judgment is right and measured, and his judgment and his justice are even prophesied and promised. Do this with me. Turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 26. I know, we haven't even gotten to Hosea 1 yet. You're already breaking more gold. Go back to Leviticus 26, another crackling of the pages in there we should probably hear. Um, It's another one of those crispy sections that we're not as familiar with as we should be because when we think of Leviticus, first of all, we've faded in our Bible reading plan in Numbers, so we never actually got to Leviticus. Well, we we kind of skip through the parts. And when we think of Leviticus, we think of uh, blood and sacrifice and rules. You have to understand, Leviticus is a gift. Leviticus is God's gracious gift to his people. Leviticus says, this is how you, wretched, fallen, failed sinners, are going to be able to live in the presence of a holy God and not only live in the presence of a holy God, but experience the unthinkable, unimaginable blessing of that holy God. And you come to Leviticus 26, and this is how it starts. Leviticus 26, verse 1 and 2, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Stay away from idols. What is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God, right? Above all else, you make sure that you are rightly reverencing and worshiping the God who made you and who called you his people. Second commandment is like that, love others. But that flows out of loving God. And God says, you keep that. Love me the way that I have called you to. Maintain faithfulness to what I have called you to do. And if you do that, then blessing after blessing after blessing is going to fall on these people. If they are faithful in their covenant relationship, their, uh, their bonded relationship to Yahweh, the God of all creation, then they can expect remarkable things. Verse 4, I'll give you rain in their season. The land is going to yield its produce. I'm going to give you rain at the right time, and you're going to have plenty to eat. Verse 5, you'll have food to the full. You'll live securely in your land. They won't go hungry. Which, by the way, when you live on the borderlands of desert all around you, is a pretty significant promise. Rain at the right time and crops are a huge thing in that part of the world. Verse 6, I'll grant you peace in the land. I'll eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. I'm going to keep the harmful beasts from ravaging you, from taking your children. I'll keep peace in the land. But look what will happen. Verse 7, you will chase your enemies. Five of you, verse 8, will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Uh, inexplicably small numbers of you will have dominion over significantly larger armies. The size of your tiny state will have no bearing on your international peace and security so long as you are obedient to me. Verse 9, I'll make you fruitful and I'll multiply you. I'll confirm my covenant with you. Not just the Mosaic covenant. We're not just talking about the law. We're looking back to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, blessing. All these things go back farther than Sinai. And the best part of all, 
the most unimaginably, unthinkably glorious thing of all is in verse 11. You say, what could be better than food and children and security in the land? This is verse 11. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. The best thing ever, the thing that you can't even think about, I'm going to be not only your God, I'm going to be with you. Understand. God dwelling among people, that is garden language. That has not happened since Eden. This is absolutely different than things had been for a very long time. Sin separates. And in the garden, sin separated God and man. And now God says, through keeping this covenant, that separation begins to dissolve. That is a remarkable promise to these people. He is going to keep them in the land because He is going to be in the land with them. But what happens if they don't? What happens if they don't obey? Look at verse 14. If you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and break my covenant, and that's what it is. This is a covenant. This is a a relationship, a, a bonding agreement between two parties. At Sinai, God says, I will do this and you are called to obey. There are other covenants that we talk about. The covenant made with all flesh, uh, the Noahic covenant in Genesis, where God says, I'm not going to flood the earth again. There is no other side to that. God says, I will not flood the earth again. No requirement. The covenant with Abraham. I am going to do these things for you, Abraham. No requirement on Abraham's part. Certainly the requirement to obey, but not the requirement to maintain the faithfulness. God says, if you break this covenant, this binding agreement between us, Verse 16, I'll appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever. Instead of security, you're going to know fear. Instead of health, you're going to know disease. You're going to sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you. You'll be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. Instead of a hundred of you chasing 10,000, now you're going to run when no one's even chasing you. Look at verse 18. If also, after these things, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sin. Keep that phrase in mind. I'll break down the pride of your power. I'll make your sky like iron and your earth bronze. I'm going to shut off the rain. I'm going to shut off the crops. Your land won't yield its produce. The trees won't give you their fruit. Verse 21. If you still act with hostility against me, I'll increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I'll let loose among you the wild beasts of the field. They'll bereave you of your children. They'll destroy your cattle. Now those beasts that I held back are going to move through the land. Verse 23, and if by these things you're not turned to me, these are warnings. These are actually calls back. Come back. Come back. Come back. And if you still do not return to me, but act with hostility against me, then I'll act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I, even I, am doing this. This is not the nations because they're strong enough. This is me exercising my divine judgment against you. A sword and vengeance for the covenant. Pestilence. Being delivered into enemy hands. Verse 26. Absolute poverty. Ten women baking bread in one oven. Eating and not being satisfied. Verse 27. In spite of this, if you still do not obey me, but act with hostility against you, and I'll act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. 
There's a chilling warning in verse 29. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. To know siege and oppression and hunger so deep that you resort to the unthinkable. And then I'll destroy your high places. I'll cut down your incense altars and I'll heap your remains on the remains of your idols. I'll tear you down and your idols down along with you. Verse 31, he won't smell their soothing aromas. He won't respond to their false worship. Verse 32, he'll make the land desolate. If they're going to be no better than the nations around them, then he will remove them just as he removed the nations before them. See, God is sovereign, and God is holy, but God is just, and sin must be dealt with. But that's not the final word. Unthinkably, the fourth major theme throughout all the minor prophets is that God is merciful. That God who they rebelled against proves to be faithful and merciful over and over and over. Look at verse 42. I'm sorry, verse 40 to 42. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then if they repent, then this is what happens, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Not in the sense that he forgot before, but that he will remember in terms of to act favorably toward that covenant again. And isn't it fascinating that he doesn't say I'm going to renew the law with you. If you repent, I'm going to restore my Abrahamic covenant blessings. And by the way, there are new covenant blessings that go through that as well. Verse 44. In spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I abhor them so as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Even after I kick them out of the land, even when they're in the land of their enemies, rightly and righteously for all of their rebellion, even there, I won't reject them. What a powerful promise about God's faithfulness and his mercy. That even after generation upon generation of faithless rebellion, he remains faithful to his covenant. Over and over in the Minor Prophets, you're going to see those same things. This sovereign, holy, just, and merciful God. He will be their God, and they will be his people. And now you can turn back to the book of Hosea. And I know you're looking at the clock. And I promise we're almost done. Very, very briefly, I just want to answer some of the questions about this particular book that we answered about the, the bulk of the books so that we can understand when we really open this up beginning next week. And the first one of those is, who wrote it? Well, first of all, Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea. The word of the Lord. This is the word of God. Who wrote the book? 
ultimately the Holy Spirit did. Why do I keep harping on that? Because there are two kinds of prophets. There are prophets who are accurate. There are prophets who speak what the Lord has spoken and their word comes to pass. And then there were dead prophets. There's no such thing as a mostly right prophet, a mostly accurate prophet, a pretty good prophet. There were people who spoke truly and there were those who deserved the death penalty. Keep that in mind when you hear people claim to be modern prophets. So ultimately God opens his mouth, but what we know about Hosea is really limited to this. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, we know his father's name is Biri. We know that his name means salvation. We know through the context of the book that he wrote to the northern kingdom in particular. And that's about it. Not a whole lot of background other than uh, the heart-rending circumstances of his family life, which will open up and develop in the coming weeks. Second, when. Now we do have information on when he wrote. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, you put that map slide back up, and it hopefully makes a little bit more sense, because now we realize that he's reading off two lists of kings. Four of those kings that he lists are kings in the southern kingdom. Those are the kings that rule from Jerusalem. And then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, it's Jeroboam II, and he rules in the north. Now, you put all of those things together and you realize Hosea's prophecy, his prophetic ministry spans about 40 years. 40 years he ministers. And one thing we don't necessarily realize just by reading this is that as he prophesies, especially at the beginning, Israel is functioning during a time of relative peace and prosperity. Over the years, as you have wicked kings, you have God's judgment exactly as he promised, and the land begins to get chipped away, armies fail, and it shrinks and ebbs and kind of flows with the strength of the kingdom. When it comes to Jeroboam II, Israel is fairly strong. The people are at peace. The army is built up. Cities are fortified. Crops are being produced again. And what you have is a people who live at relative peace. Now that fails very, very quickly because... Peace and prosperity almost never lead to spiritual prosperity. Almost always leads to spiritual laziness and apathy, and that's exactly what happens. And as the people grow fat and lazy and spiritually dull, even more so, judgment comes and it comes quickly. Jeroboam rules for about 40 years. Over the next 40 years, six kings rule, and four of them are killed by the guy that are gonna, that's going to take their place. Rebellion and rejection lead to judgment, and Hosea is the last warning. Again, if you look at this little timeline here, you'll see that Hosea, as he writes to the northern kingdom, he's the last word. After him, God brings the judgment. So why does he write? Well, like I just said, that is a warning. But I want to close our time with looking at why God why God describes their rejection the way that he does. Why is he warning them? Look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. That's the why. Hosea is going to be called to enter into one of the most dramatic pictures in the entire Bible one of the most heartbreaking displays of love and unfaithfulness in the entire Bible. And the reason is because the people are spiritual adulterers. 
This whole thing surrounds that picture of marriage. Two people, a man and a woman, singularly committed and devoted to one another. And the picture held up in Hosea is of a faithful God, husband of steadfast love to his people, and an adulterous people who continually turn to others. Now this drama is going to play out in the life of Hosea and his wife Gomer and the lives of the people of Israel, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. We're calling this series Major Truth from the Minor Prophets. And we're not working through this just to crack the gold leaf or just to know more about where we're relatively ignorant. We're doing this because God has graciously given us these books. These are going to show us in a very clear way who God is. They're going to remind us of how we approach God in worship. They're going to remind us of the nature of obedience. And I hope that we are going to be continually struck and silenced by the reality of God's mercy. I hope you're looking forward to the next 12 months. I am. So, three things for us to think about. First of all, there's a unique opportunity for unity here in the Minor Prophets. And not just unity in the sense of us being bonded together, but in the sense of us doing the same thing. The Minor Prophets give us a remarkable opportunity to be reading the same thing fairly consistently. Because I know some struggle with reading plans, and in particular, many of us never actually get to the Minor Prophets in our reading plans. So here's what we have the opportunity to do, and that is to read through these. I would challenge you and encourage you to read through the book that we are preaching through once a week. If you read through Hosea once a week, then when we come together on Sunday mornings, things are going to click, they're going to make sense, we'll be able to talk together and think together and pray together about these things in a very, very powerful way. It's two chapters a day. Hosea is 14 chapters. If you do two chapters a day, you'll have this done by next week, and I promise you that is very, very doable. Wait till we get to some of the shorter books. You're going to say it's absolutely doable. I would encourage you to be reading along with one another. Secondly, we get to be reminded of those major themes. God's sovereignty, his holiness, his justice, and his mercy. Those are going to be on full display even in the first chapter of Hosea. We won't get out of chapter one without being just saturated with all of those things. But can you see one of those even now? Even after all that we've said today, after all the historical stuff and the times and the dates and the kings and the names, just today, have you seen God's mercy? Hosea is the last prophet to the northern kingdom. But God allowed that kingdom to carry on for 200 years. 200 years of failed kings and failed worship, and he waited. And even when he sends Hosea for 40 more years, he waited. From day one, he had every right, every bit of authority to completely eliminate the sinful and wicked people. And God waited. Aren't you thankful that God is merciful? Third, I think there's a warning for us here, and that is in prosperity and pride. Prosperity and security almost always lead to pride and spiritual apathy. We are not Israel. We are not threatened by a removal from our land or our building. But you and I live in a time and place of peace and prosperity. Well, there's conflict all around us, to be sure. But the Western church, by and large, spiritually fat and lazy. There's danger there. 
We don't like conflict. We don't like hardship. We don't like suffering. In fact, we actively try to avoid it. But the reality is that those things have a way of refining us and driving us back to the God who saved us in the first place. So in our times of comfort and peace, it's good to be reminded that God is holy and that God is just. And then in his mercy, he's placed us where we are so we can be thankful and we can be very careful. And then kids, I have a very special application just for you. So fifth grade and under, which again is my kids section. Everyone else, you can do this too and you get a high five. Kids, here's what I want you to try and do. If you are in fifth grade and under, I would love for you to try and memorize those 12 minor prophets. Memorize the names of those 12 books. And if you can come up to me and tell me those, then first of all, you will also get a high five. But we'll have something special for you there. And when your parents don't remember them, you can help them remind them. It would be very, very helpful for your whole family. All right? So there's some ways that we can be pulling together even as we start this new journey. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've left for us in your word. Through every piece and every part, you've reminded us that you are holy and that we, your people, are called to be holy as well. And though we fall and though we fail, you prove to be merciful, gracious, kind, and compassionate again and again. Lord, make us faithful. Make us obedient. Draw us to worship you, not only in light of who you are, but in light of your tender mercies, your compassion to us. We serve a remarkable, faithful, wondrous, holy God. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.